Hello, my name is Christy Potter and I'm the director of the January series and it's my pleasure to welcome you today to today's January series. Will you please join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to gather together to hear from our friends Ayata Geis. Give us ears to listen and to reflect and to question and inspire us to do great things in your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could just do one technical note, if you could turn off your cell phones, we'd greatly appreciate that at this point. And now Carolyn Wharton, pastor at Plymouth Heights Christian Reformed Church here in Grand Rapids and a friend of our guest today, will introduce our guest. It's my great pleasure this afternoon to introduce to you my dear friend, Seata Grace. Now, she likes to be called Susie. So if you can call her Susie if you want to. Uh, we met uh, a number of years ago when I was teaching in Cairo, Egypt, at the school where she was attending Ramses College in Cairo, and she was one of my piano pupils. So this is a very special privilege uh, for me to introduce to you someone who's been a special friend all these years. Uh, following her graduation from what was then called the American College for Girls, Susie studied at Chatham College in Pittsburgh and then earned a master's degree at the American University in Cairo. She later married uh, Gamal Aldaev, and she's raised three sons and has traveled extensively uh, throughout the world with her husband, who represented Egypt as an ambassador in several countries. But even during the time that he was busy, she was busy doing volunteer work in each of these locations. And uh, she f uh, is professionally uh, a person who is, uh, her career is in development specialist. And so she has used that training and that experience in her work in Cairo. She is currently, as you will notice by in your brochures, uh, the president of the uh, board chairman for the Association for the Protection of the Environment, as well as a member of the Egyptian parliament. So she's going to be sharing with you um, her work in both areas, and it is with great pleasure that I introduce her to you, and also to give thanks to John and Mary Lokes, who have underwritten this presentation. Susie? Thank you, Carolyn, for this very kind introduction. I wish to extend my sincere appreciation and thanks to Dr. Galen Biker, president of Calvin College, to Christy Potter and Diana Dole for your warm reception and for organizing the January series lectures, to the sponsors of the January series, to the administrators and staff of this very well-known and esteemed institution. It is indeed a great honor for me to be invited as a speaker in Calvin College's January series. A geographical distance of 6,000 miles separates Egypt from the United States. But my education at the American College for Girls, which was and is a prestigious school established by the Presbyterian Church's mission in Egypt, since the last century, it is now called Ramses College, as Carolyn has mentioned, has inspired and motivated me and many other of its graduates 
to believe and uphold the Christian principles of serving the less fortunate and marginalized members in our society. Egypt, for many, is known as the land of the Great Pyramids, a country located at the crossroads of three continents that have greatly influenced its civilization and culture. The country's population now exceeds 80 million, who live on less than 5% of its land. Its greatest resource is its social capital, and its greatest challenge is the development of its human resources needed to maintain sustainable economic growth. This growth can only be realized if all men and women, regardless of their social status, are able to actively participate and, more importantly, contribute and add value in a global competitive economic environment. Let me now walk you through the journey to empowerment. The setting of our journey is the community of garbage collectors living in what is called today Manshayet Nasser. It is the largest of eight informal garbage villages with a population of approximately 55,000 people and is located on part of Cairo's Mukattam Hills. The inhabitants, mostly landless, poor, illiterate Christian farmers, emigrated from Upper Egypt in the early 1940s, seeking a better life in this huge urban metropolis of roughly 2 million inhabitants then. They ended up becoming the city's garbage collectors, or as known to all Egyptians, the Zabalin, that's an Arabic word, living in garbage villages as urban squatters. According to the municipal authorities, they were a community without any recognized status and by definition had no rights. The urban growth of the city led to the eviction of the Zabalin from lands they occupied. A powerless people with little bargaining power, their resistance to eviction by the municipal authorities was very meager. The decision to, eviction, to evict them from their garbage village in Mukattam ended in the early 1970s through the intervention and confrontation led by the Coptic Orthodox Church and a host of organizations who, recognizing their hardships and appalling poverty, defended their cause with the municipal authorities. They were finally allowed to continue surviving in Mukattam and maintain the economic activity of garbage collection, which they performed at a very negligible cost. Up until the 1990s, the garbage collectors would set out at dawn on donkey-pulled carts to individual residences in Cairo, collect the garbage, take it back to their garbage village, and sort it into separate recyclable components, paper, plastic, cloth, glass, tin, and food. Scraps of food were fed to the pigs, and other items were sold to recycling centers outside the village. The entire family worked tirelessly for long extended hours of the day to collect and sort household waste. The men and children collected the women and girls above puberty did the sorting. They also had to carry the rotten food to feed the pigs and maintain the pig's ties. This very arduous task consumed prolonged hours of the day. 
Raising pigs, however, provided a valuable source of a subsistence income. Moreover, since Muslims were loath to handle pigs, the trade became a predominantly Christian activity. The appalling poverty of this community was very visible to anyone visiting Mukattam. Fires burned out constantly to get rid of unused piles of garbage left out on the streets. On windy days, these were often uncontrolled. Wiping out their meager possessions along with their chacks made of tin and cardboard. Only those living in garbage city survived the stench and smell of manure and garbage. Infectious diseases were widespread. Child mortality rates were high due to such a highly unsanitary environment. Moreover, the nature of this work carried a social stigma and the Zabalin were perceived by shame, with shame by the government and considered unclean and treated with disdain. As a Christian minority, they faced much discrimination. The Zabalin somehow survived those early years without support, without education, without basic technology, and without the minimum standards of hygiene or recognition. Through the dedicated efforts of Bishop Samuel, well known for his efforts to alleviate the poverty of Coptic Christians, and who incidentally was killed when former president Anwar Sadat was assassinated, the first NGO mobilized the Zabalin to address a very important religious cultural practice, the burial of the dead and to offer some vital social services in the community. Eventually, other charitable organizations and the invaluable support of Sister Emmanuel, a well-recognized Belgium nun, a private consulting business, EQI, or as is known, Environmental Quality International, with funding from international organizations, the World Bank and the Governorate of Cairo all joined to upgrade the settlement and the waste disposal system in ways that were both environmentally and economically sound. Through the 1990s, Bokatam experienced a major change with the installment of utilities, roads, electricity, and other basic health and education services. Environmental Quality International, led by a well-known consultant, Dr. Munir Namatallah, was instrumental in this transformation. The settlement was mapped and surveyed, and a project was started to improve sanitation in this area. Diversifying some economic activities, was achieved through the introduction of basic recycling family enterprises. The process of community transformation from solely garbage collection to recycling was slow and gradual. Eventually, it became apparent to the garbage collectors that waste recycling was a lucrative trade. However, pigs still lived, shared, still shared living accommodations with the family and garbage continued to be sorted inside the homes of the Zabalin. In 1984, a second NGO, the Association for the Protection of the Environment, which you have here above you, uh, was established. APE is a secular organization in which both Christians and Muslims work side by side. APE has its headquarters in Mukattam, with branches and programs in Torah, another 
the Berlin community, and Katameya, a recycling center. EPE's mandate is to promote environmentally safe solid waste management through empowering garbage collectors, particularly women, children, and youth, to become technologically able to manage a viable system of solid waste, of solid house, of system of household waste, including recycling in Egypt. This can be achieved through comprehensive development in health, education, social, economic, and cultural programs so that they can become agents of change for a better environment. It was founded by professionals and volunteers who were familiar with the community, its plights and hardships. They saw the strong potential for creating income-generating programs through recycling waste. To realize these goals, we used a two-fold approach, upgrading the technical expertise of the garbage collectors, while at the same time enhancing their professional, educational, and health standards. Strong emphasis is placed on involving the community at every level and mobilizing local resources with the objective of fostering ownership and creating a strong sense of community pride. APE's first initiative was the establishment of a compost plant with the support of EQI, an abundance of pig manure in the community, which was used to be carted away by outsiders, was ideal for turning it into high-quality fertilizer, very suitable for reclaimed desert land, fruit growing, and organic agriculture, and generating revenues to support the operation of the NGO. But this was the only the beginning of APE's involvement in Mukatta. Let me now further uh, narrow your focus this morning on the most oppressed and vulnerable in the community. These are the women and girls, wives and mothers of garbage collector families whose livelihoods in Mukattam had not been affected by the, econo the ongoing economic improvements. It is known that strong cultural traditions in many rural areas of Egypt are still deeply rooted in patriarchy and male dominance. Women are expected to stay at home, bear, and raise children. They have no control over the family income and little decision-making and little access to resources. Within the family of the garbage collector, a strict division of labor defines various family chores. Girls, after reaching puberty, are secluded to the confines of the home where they help their mothers take care of younger siblings and sort garbage. The women are the most vulnerable to food and water scarcity. They often sacrifice and subjugate their own needs for the sake of male household members. The prevalent gender ideology encourages and supports early marriage for many girls before the then legal age of 16. Furthermore, female genital mutilation is performed on them to ensure their marriageability. Women are expected to give birth early in marriage, preferably to a son, so as to prove their fertility. Not so much value is placed on girls and consequently little value is placed on their education. In short, girls are discriminated against, are never treated like their brothers who are given priority over resources and have power over their sisters. 
These women now live in Mokattam, were experiencing even worse hardships. Their mobility in their new environment was further restricted. Life in this community brought no joys, but greater suffering and insecurity. Appropriate behavior for girls is definitely conservative and rural. Unmarried daughters are under surveillance by older family members, making sure they do not escape in sharing household production activities. In brief, girls and women were denied their very basic rights. Targeting the adolescent girls living under such unfair conditions was APE's next challenge. In this conservative traditional settings, many questions were, uh, were raised. Will the families allow the girls to leave their homes and go to APE? What opportunities could APE offer them right here in their own environment? What type of approach was needed to draw the girls and women to the association? What was the key entry point? These girls were illiterate, possessed very few skills, and were not allowed to work outside the home. APE had established a certain credibility in the community with the successful operation of the compost plant that was its first project, but, as mentioned earlier, did not achieve direct benefits to the girls and women. However, breaking the cycle of poverty and empowering the adolescent girls and women was and still is the goal. We knew that introducing important changes to the lives of the adolescent girls and young women who frequented APE would have a direct benefit to their families and to the community at large. There is no preset formula or prescription that can be followed when addressing the human development of adolescent girls living in deprivation and poverty, particularly those living in Mokattam. Therefore, as in many development initiatives, APE started small. It was necessary to introduce non-traditional skills, new social identities, and new income-generating opportunities for adolescent girls, all within the context of their traditional roles. The first livelihood project for girls was rug weaving. It was called the Learn and Earn Project. Begun in 1987, the project identified two related objectives. First, adding to girls' economic skills and personal income. And second, finding a way to release them even temporarily from the confines of their households and the squalor of sorting garbage by hand. Laila Kamel, who is an APE volunteer and a researcher about the Zabalin, reflects, with their eyes focused on a heap of rotting food for a good few hours of each day, the worldview of these young girls was one that needed an infusion of color, cleanliness, and hope. Following numerous visits and negotiations with families, 26 of the neediest girls became the first members of the rug weaving project. The girls spent four hours per day training, learning rug weaving skills, and for a period of three to six months. During this training, the girls were motivated to acquire knowledge of basic reading and math. These were necessary if they were to advance to more complicated rug weaving designs and qualify to earn wages 
from a newly acquired skill. The beginnings were full of trials and errors. This was a learning experience, not only for the girls, but also for the volunteers and co-workers at APE. Alternative solutions to various problems were discussed. These in income-generating activities were the source of limited economic independence for the girls and was the first they had ever earned themselves. Bi-monthly meetings attended by all trainees, staff, and volunteers served as a tool for empowerment. Discussions focused on any of the following, production matters, wages and loan repayments, field trips, marketing products and sales events, prizes and incentives, announcements of social events such as engagements and marriages, health and socioeconomic socio-dramas, and lastly, crisis management and actions to be taken. Moreover, APE ensured that its activities instill discipline, pride, and tidiness. Such values are also integrated into recreational activities. Day field trips and four-day summer camps provide exposure to the outside world. Decisions are made in a truly participatory manner, an enabling environment free of the drudgery associated with these girls' daily chores of sorting garbage by hand was hereby created in Mokattam. A paper recycle and embroidery project was established in 1993. A project recycles paper by hand and produces a quality of paper suitable for writing and artwork, such as greeting cards, gift bags, and picture albums, to name a few examples. And it's probably the only paper hand paper recycling project which only hires or at least produces by girls or women. By 1997 at Mukattam, other girls were learning to do patchwork with cotton cloth remnants donated by various businesses. The girls and women take loans to buy sewing machines so they can do this work at home. The girls are paid for the volume and quality of their products. The products have gained much popularity and are sold in Egypt and orders are received from the United States and Europe. The most recent order came from Mark Jacobs, a well-known American designer, and this has kept us uh, actually in very good business. Another area of great concern to APE was improving general health practices in the community. Greater attention had to be focused on the connection between the unmet needs rights of adolescent girls, and the longer-term maternal and child health outcomes. Health care became another entry point. Young women were employed as health workers in successive groups. These girls served as agents of change to reach families with the newborn and at the same time provide knowledge about reproductive health. This program increased in one year, immunization, child immunization levels in the community from 2 to 50%. Using strong messages to discontinue also what I consider is the abhorrent practice of FGM or female genital mutilation. The program also provided information about infectious diseases and child nutrition, personal hygiene, early marriage, and the importance of a girl's education women's and girls' rights, and gender relations. This provided an opportunity to discuss sociocultural issues and traditions. 
A crisis management committee was created in response to particular difficulties faced by the poor in situations of sickness and death and support for female-headed households. It encouraged delayed and voluntary marriages for the women. Uh, a 500-pound or the equivalent of $100 was promised to the young women working at APE if they deferred early marriage and freely consented to the selected suitor. Over the course of the last 25 years, there occurred a major transformation in the lives of hundreds of adolescent girls who today are married and of whom many are working at APE. There is great pride in their accomplishments. They are able to make informed decisions regarding their children's education and general well-being. Many have announced that they will not subject their daughters to the practice of FGM. Their economic empowerment and education have earned them the respect of their families, acquired skills in project management, work in the administration of APE, knowledge of computer and basic English language, exposure to the outside world has raised their self-esteem and their status within the family. APE staff represent APE at annual sales events. They have learned to negotiate for certain rights. They, those working full-time enjoy social insurance and have medical care. APE also operates a very comprehensive education program which is offering care from nursery, preschool education, literacy classes, and afternoon scholastic improvement classes. Today, the adolescent girls who started their training on rug weaving are training beneficiaries from other NGOs. They have taken ownership of their income generating units, which today generate profits that are reinvested to expand outreach programs. The compost plant that I mentioned earlier that was operating at Mukattam had to be relocated in 1997 to a site in Katameya due to population growth in the community. An ecological garden has been planted in this area of the compost plant. It is the only green area at Mukattam today. Unfortunately, last year with the outbreak of the H1N1 virus, the government made a rash decision to cull all pigs in Egypt. The, scares, the scare that has spread all over the world, claiming that pigs transmitted the swine flu virus, has been a major setback, especially for the poor Zabalin, whose source of livelihood disappeared with the forced slaughter of their pigs. APE initiated a rapid response by providing emergency relief to the elderly, widowed, and sick who lost their incomes. The little compensation given by the government, however, was by no means sufficient to sustain these families through this crisis or an, on any long-term basis. The work of APE continues to grow and expand, particularly in relation to health, education, and solid waste management, which currently is a major problem for the municipal authorities. All are key components of our program. APE currently employs a staff of 420 persons in its three locations. Its programs have reached directly and indirectly more than 80% of the garbage collector communities of Mukattam and Tora. The health education program, prevention program has saved the lives of many children. 
In 2004, more than 7,000 adults and children were vaccinated against hepatitis B. Through the generous contributions of many organizations and individuals, APE is currently offering free-of-charge prevention and treatment from the deadly hepatitis C virus. The challenges change from day to day. The environment at Mukattam is still very unsanitary, but the work continues. We are agents of change in this context. Our goal is to strengthen ownership of APE by the leaders who have emerged over the years. Our strength is our faith and conviction that change was and is possible. We owe this much to those who are less fortunate. But what stands out in this endeavor is the dedication, the long-term commitment, and the love and effort of those who made this transformation happen through innovation and creativity. Reflecting on today's debate around climate change and minimizing human impact to our planet, it is important to note that there are organizations such as APE that have made a difference for the last 26 years before it became necessary to talk about saving the environment. The poorest of the poor, the Zabalin, have been recycling waste to make a living. APE is currently participating and advising the government on redesigning feasible management systems for solid waste that better integrate the Zabalin. Promoting the participation of the private sector in recycling businesses is a top priority if we are to save our planet from further destruction. In conclusion, APE is deeply indebted to the development professionals, researchers and volunteers, and technical support provided by many expatriates living in Egypt and abroad, who have dedicated their time to APE's success story. I wish to acknowledge the leaders whose pioneering projects have changed the lives of girls, women, and families. These are Dr. Munir Namatalla, Mrs. Marie Assad, Dr. Laila Skander, and Mrs. Rusreya Loza, not to mention just a few of those volunteers. No one who knows also of the Zabalin has not heard of Sister Emmanuel and Sister Anne-Marie, who came to Egypt and lived among the Zabalin for many years. I wish also to salute the girls, women, and families who accepted the challenge to change. And now allow me to share with you some photos of APE's activities. They speak for themselves. Uh, I will not comment on any of them unless any of you have uh, specific questions. Uh, but these are photos taken from our uh, archives, uh, volunteers at APE. Uh, the trained midwives, we have to train the midwives in the community so that we can decrease infectious diseases. Uh, and Marie, the sister I was talking about, uh, celebration of the volunteers, and then educational lectures for Manchet Nasser residents. Uh, international visits to APE. Last year we had the uh, prime minister's wife from France who visited us, uh, a new rug weaving center. Uh, and we have a choir, the APE choir, a uh, children's choir, the training on the rugs. We have to separate 
learning how to separate colors. Uh, rug trainees also preparing all the materials, uh, final touches to the products, uh, trainee products. Uh, you see that they can write Egypt, uh, which is quite an accomplishment. Uh, this is a rug weaving center, a picture of it. We have to, the looms cannot be placed in many of the homes, so many of the girls come to the center to work on the looms. Uh, we have now the patchwork uh, trainees. Uh, they're here learning how to do uh, that art. Uh, we have quality control, of course, for our products, which is very important. Uh, this is a showroom with our products. Uh, the children's club is a very important activity, and we take children from the age of 4 to 16 months. Uh, many of them, many of the mothers who work at APE bring their children to this uh, nursery school. Uh, we have activities for the children, uh, and we, we call it the children's club because we'd like to keep it uh, managed by ourselves and not get too much, much government intervention into the program. Uh, uh, this is the paper recycling project, and these are the girls preparing the paper, uh, the shredding, uh, the mashing, all very simple technologies that we use. Uh, the processing, uh, and uh, these pictures just show, uh, this is the compost plant that I talked about, the before site. This is when the Zabalin used to bring, living there would bring in all the garbage and haul it into the community. Uh, today, when the compost plant was removed, we planted an ecological garden, and this garden, uh, this picture actually does not show the reality. Those trees have uh, grown much larger sizes, and it's a really beautiful area today. Uh, this is the compost site uh, before, and uh, again, another picture to show how the situation was then, uh, after with the, the garden. The ecological garden has also is being used as well to be able to uh, provide some products for our paper recycling, such as flower petals and leaves. And we're planting some uh, uh, plants that uh, today risk uh, being uh, completely uh, exterminated. Uh, so we are reviving uh, some of those plants that came uh, from uh, ancient times. Uh, our health programs that I discussed very briefly in uh, my talk, the, the virus B vaccination program. And then this is the community of Torah. Torah, this is, you can just uh, imagine that this is how the Zabalin lived. These are the shelters made out of tin and cardboard. And this is a before picture. Torah has now been completely transformed and this is the after picture. This is how Torah is today. Uh, the Zabalin who lived there maintained their work as garbage collectors, but their activity of sorting and collecting garbage is done elsewhere in Katameya. Uh, this is the Katameya site where we have our recycling uh, center, uh, which is quite active also. We make the machines and we have our compost plant there and we have a program for women on that site. Uh, these are some of the recycling machines that, we, that are made by our NGO. Of course, the scale of our work is still very small. We are an NGO, we are not the government. We cannot take the government's place in addressing the needs of the city in terms of solid waste management. We can, but we can advise them. 
uh, and that's the compost manufacturing, which we generates revenue for the, our NGO, because in the end we want everything to be self-sustaining and have people who work in this trade take ownership of those activities. Uh, and that's the preparation of the compost here, you can see that. And then these are some of the products that uh, APE uh, has been making over the years. And we keep developing new ideas and new styles and new designs, welcome uh, any suggestions. Uh, so I will just uh, take you briefly, these are carpets, uh, little rugs that uh, can be machine washable. Uh, and here we have some toys, uh, bags, uh, you name it, it's there. We have wall hangings, uh, these are paper recycled, uh, these are cards and picture frames, uh, a big variety. And I'll just try to give you a quick uh, overview of what AP has been doing and how we have been able to help uh, uh, create an environment, enabling environment for very poor people living in a garbage collector's community. These are bedspreads that we make we export a lot of this stuff as well. Uh, and I think, uh, given with these, all of the uh, above, uh, I wish to thank you for uh, listening uh, to this uh, presentation and uh, to your encouragement for this kind of work. Thank you again. Um, we invite your questions. You'll see there's a microphone there and a microphone here. If you will just come to the mic and I will uh, it, call on you one by one with your questions. We have until uh, about 1.30, so we have a few minutes for questions. So please come and ask what you would like. Please. Yeah, wondered if the Muslim Brotherhood cooperated and encouraged this, and also were these Christian women that also had the female genital mutilation? Uh, actually, uh, the Muslim brothers don't have anything to do with the, our work because we are an NGO. They have their own organizations as well. However, as a secular organization, we like to serve everybody. So we have Muslims who are beneficiaries of our projects because many Muslims also are very poor. When it comes to female genital mutilation, this is a cultural practice which has no basis in religion, neither in Islam or in Christianity. However, the practice has been perpetuated by a lot of people who believe that a girl's marriageability will be threatened, that this practice, that men will not come and marry a woman who has not undergone such uh, an operation. So what we've done in Egypt, that uh, what used to be a taboo subject, and uh, that was taboo until when the ICPD conference was held in Egypt back in 1994. Uh, I think a, a program, I think it was CNN that shot a documentary or portrayed this happening in our country. That created an uproar in our society. The government was not happy at all with uh, what this kind of report, because by then, FGM was really a taboo subject. Nobody would talk about it, as we don't talk about street children as well. But now, 
we know that these are problems that we have. So civil society, the task force was organized to mobilize all the NGOs, to go into the villages and the smaller communities and raise awareness of parents, men and women. You cannot talk only to the women. You have to convince the men as well. And gradually, we have, inc I mean, there are indicators that the practice is decreasing. We don't know to what extent yet, but at least one program that has worked very well is to get a whole village to stand up, men and women, the members of the community, government uh, institutions all stand up and proclaim and make an announcement. We will not do any more. We will stop the practice of FGM. Moreover, our, our government also, in parliament, we passed a law to penalize anyone who would be performing FGM. So with penalties, however, of course, you have to understand the enforcement of such penalties are not very easy because many people will still resort to them and they will not be reported. But those who are reported will uh, be punished, such as early marriage as well. If uh, women, uh, girls are being married at the age of 13 or 14 or 15, the legal age today is 18. Then again, if you report, if it's reported, they will prosecute any uh, of the ma'zun, uh, these are the, uh, the Muslim, uh, the Muslim, uh, how do you call them in Arabic, ma'zun, uh, it's the same word, who would uh, certify a marriage or write a marriage contract. Over here. Thank you. You hit on my question a little bit. I wanted to know if you have any statistical um, evidence or, or signs that you have, for example, reduced the birth rate or helped uh, with a later childbearing age, or if you've got some statistics that show some of the positive impact beyond the environmental job that you're undertaking. Uh, I do not have, because, of course, if I give you statistics, that means that I have to go and I develop a database, and from that database I measure uh, and provide indicators to show uh, what has happened in the community. I cannot give you and tell you, for example, that 80% or 70% have, this has been reduced, but I do know from the women who work with us, our interaction with them on a day-to-day -day basis has helped many of them take a stand and say no. So I know that many of them, but there are still others. Just remember that change is a very slow process when it comes to changing people's behavior specific to traditional practices. We know that we're getting there, but we would need a very large-scale study to be able to come up with accurate uh, statistics for me to report to you. I hate to just make generalizations when I do not have that in my hand. Thank you. Over here. Yes, uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, you kind of hit on it a little bit there, but uh, it's well known in development practice that one of the best ways to uh, equip a community with the tools for development is to uh, empower the women. Um, you spoke a little bit about uh, the cultural stigmas and the subjugation of women in Egypt. Um, have you noticed any tension between these cultural norms and uh, the efforts that you are making to empower the women of these communities? Of course. Uh, this is uh, all over. However, when you educate women, 
This is the key entry point that we find. You, get, you educate them and give, give them some economic independence. So I'm talking about the Zebalin community. I'm not generalizing about all women in Egypt because that's a different story altogether. Uh, if we're talking about the education of women in Egypt, many women, we still have a very high rate of literacy. I can say that at least there is still 35% of adult women who are illiterate in Egypt, and that's a very high percentage, and the government does has put in measures to be able to have literacy classes so that we have less of that, because this is the these women are... Uh, the perpetrators of many of the harmful uh, practices and many of the, what, uh, without give, not supporting the education of their daughters. So this is definitely high on the government's priority agenda. Uh, but in Mukattam, we now have, I mean, at least in our program, it is a must that you have to have or at least the girls are encouraged and motivated because they know that they will earn money. If they cannot read and write, they will not be able to do any of the uh, acquire the skills that are needed. And I, I mentioned that uh, very briefly. And then we are offering also education classes because the quality of education in Egypt still has to be improved. And so in many of the government schools that are very few resources, the classes are too big. To, for children to receive any individual attention. So uh, what we've done at APE is to offer afternoon scholastic improvement classes, and we have every day more than 250 children who come to attend these classes, and we offer them some recreational, uh, a recreational program every few days, and then we offer them also a very small meal because some of them have not eaten and are very, come from very poor families. And if you're hungry, you're not going to learn very much. So uh, at least this is one of the programs that has, had, uh, has been very well received in the community. Next. Um, as you were speaking, I was reminded of uh, the um, Greenbelt Movement in East Africa and of the Women's Environmental Movement in India. And I wondered if you think there's anything particular about women's empowerment and protection of the environment, perhaps um, maybe especially in the developing world, and if you could comment on that. Uh, of course there is. I mean, if women play a major role, because in many of the African countries, they are the farmers, they are the ones who till the land, they are the ones who go and fetch water, they are the ones who do a lot of uh, the work associated with the environment. Uh, maybe they don't cut down the trees, but uh, at least... Uh, it is, they're there in many aspects uh, of this work. So I believe in any society, if you don't get the participation of women in full, you will have lost half of the potential of your population. And then many of the projects uh, somehow avoid or they oversee the role of women. So they end up becoming failures because they have not taken into consideration the role that women play in that respect. And if I take, for example, in East Africa, uh, uh, I, my, my memory is very bad when it comes to, but there's this activist who received the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and she uh, went out and planted trees in East Africa, in Nairobi. I met her, actually, at one of the conferences, and it's heartening to see what, what you can do to motivate women to participate. And then, of course, water. Water is going to be a very scarce resource in our part of the world. We don't have any rainfall, and we, have, we are consuming more than what we is available. So we have to protect 
there, so women play a major role there as well. Over here. Could you please tell us about your role in the parliament? How many women there are in the parliament? How many Christians? And if you have an impact as a woman for these causes that you represent? Uh, in our parliament, I hate to say this, <laughs> there are uh, 444 elected members, and then the president is allowed to appoint 10. So we have a total of 454 members in the parliament. Of these, uh, those who were elected as women were only four women won elections. So the president appointed another five women, and I was one of the appointees. When it comes to Christians, it's even worse, because there's only one Christian MP who was elected, and that was our Minister of Finance, who is an international figure, uh, Dr. Butros, uh, Yusuf Butros Ghali, uh, and uh, the president appointed another five. So. I think probably chose three women uh, and three cops, five cops. Uh, this is sort of like uh, killing two birds with one stone. I represent Coptic Christians, and I am a woman. <laughs> um, uh, but our work in Parliament really is divided into uh, the committees, as in all parliaments. We have about 18 committees. So, of course, being so very few women, you cannot really run around uh, and participate in all of them, but you are free to attend. I personally uh, work on the Environment and Health Committee and the Committee on Foreign uh, Relations, and that has given me an opportunity to participate in many international conferences. I came twice to the U.S. Uh, as part of a delegation to meet with senators and congressmen in Washington, D.C., and that was very important for us to be able to bridge a gap. It had been quite uh, a long time uh, that our speaker had not come and visited the U.S., and that is very necessary that we bridge also uh, relations at the level of parliamentarians. It's not only the executive. It has to be also at all levels in the society, the three branches. So uh, our parliament has done, we have passed a quota last year to uh, have 64 women enter and become members in the parliament. And this quota is going to allow women to compete among each other and ensures 64 seats for women in our parliament. That is in addition to the ones that are already there. So we are seeing a change, and we are seeing, you know, it's much more hopeful. Sometimes it seems we were much better off maybe like 20 or 30 years ago, and then uh, the quota that was there, the quota system was abolished because some men uh, went to the constitutional, higher constitutional court and said this was uh, not constitutional, so they had to abolish it. And then the numbers of women started gradually declining from one parliamentary cycle to the other. But finally, it seems like you have to come down to the very, very lowest point to start, you know, waking up and saying, this cannot go on. So now, in our next elections, we will have more women in parliament. Thank you. Um, over here next, I think. Um, there are a number of uh, organizations uh, Many of them uh, uh, organized in this, in this country 
uh, that uh, go from uh, go to different countries and uh, offer small loans and help people get started that way. Finca, for example, and Opportunities Unlimited. Did any of these play a role in the uh, in, in, in the initiatives, or did it come right from within the community? Did they are they raising themselves by their own bootstraps, or uh, are there any any help from all these organizations? Are they active in Egypt at all? Uh, there are some international organizations that are active, and some of them are funded uh, by USAID, operating in Egypt, like Save the Children uh, is one of them, CARE. Uh, there are several of those. But more recently, we have experienced in a decline uh, in terms of this type of funding. I think what we're looking at is how can we engage our private sector in Egypt because Egypt is no longer considered one of the very poor countries. We're in the middle range. So what we're trying to do is to get our big firms and the private uh, companies to look at their corporate social responsibility vis-a-vis what, vis what they have to offer to uh, the development of uh, the, uh, the poorer areas. So we are seeing a slow transition but there definitely are many NGOs that have been uh, supported uh, in Egypt by such programs. We have a question from um, our remote web uh, site. Do you think that pigs can be reintroduced into Egypt? Uh, yes. Uh, I've made sure, actually, I have to say that uh, I was very, very upset when this decision was made. And I was the only one who opposed the government uh, because of the culling of the pigs. And I said in my, to, uh, my statement in Parliament that you will see that within two or three or four months, you will see garbage strewn all over the streets of Cairo. And this is exactly what happened. But immediately, when the government took that action, a lot of us who are supporting uh, the communities and the commercial trade uh, went to the government and we said, you have to allocate land where those who want to continue raising pigs will be able to do so. We are citizens of this country and we have equal rights like everybody else and this has to uh, happen. So land has been allocated in a distant location, but it will take time to put in the necessary infrastructure you need water, you need electricity, you need roads to get there, and you need some kind of an infrastructure or a system whereby you lease uh, the pig pens or have move maybe some people there who will uh, raise their pigs and do some of the recycling, but they will be reintroduced. We will make sure that we'll have that done. At least I've, I'm fighting for it. <laughs> I think we have time for just one or two more questions. Were you next? I have just a very brief comment. Uh, in 1997, I had the opportunity to study in Cairo, and I was volunteering at APE oh. once a week. And um, just, I remember the difference it made in the lives of the girls there. Um, and in, in what a bleak place that they lived, and the stench of it I will never, never forget. That was when the compost pile was still active uh, in the city. And I just wanted to thank you for your work, because it really is making such a difference in the lives of all those girls. Uh, what we really hope, of course, now, uh, there are no pigs in Mukattam, so forcefully removed. 
the, we had called on the government to locate an area, a site, where the, those who were living in Mukattam could raise their pigs elsewhere. Some of the garbage collectors resisted that. It was going to be too much of a trouble for them. And there's a cost involved. If you are going to take your garbage, collect the garbage, and take it elsewhere to be sorted and recycled, you have to provide the resources for it. So many of them were resisting for that reason. But now we are looking, how can we upgrade some of the recycling industries in the communities, especially that there is some land available from the pigsties and they cannot raise pigs anymore there, and we don't want them to. It is, we have to acknowledge, you cannot have humans living side by side with pigs and garbage. You can still maintain the activity, but it has to be done separately, as was shown in our, uh, the work we do in the Torah site, the Zabalian Torah site. We have time for one last question. Thank you. My question has to do with economic power. Are you doing any marketing of your products? You mentioned Mark Jacobs, uh, the designer. And if so, how are they able to uh, purchase them? Actually, we are trying, this is one of the challenges, is to open markets for our products. For our products. And one of the things that we're trying to do is develop a marketing strategy. We are working with a consultant who is designing a special strategy for us so that we can reach uh, other uh, markets. Uh, the fact that we got uh, Mark Jacobs uh, an order was someone who came and visited APE, and they liked what they saw. And then, of course, remember, we're talking now about climate change. We're talking about how we can save the environment. So any green products are very welcome and are, uh, uh, are going to be encouraged. And that's what we are uh, trying to do, is to say, okay, these are recycled, this is how we're going to save our environment, and uh, help, and the help not only in the marketing, but also in producing designs, new designs, improving the technology that we use. I mean, the paper recycling is all done by hand, it's, uh, it, because we want to employ the girls. But then the volume of what you can produce is also limited by the, the skills and the capacities of those who are there. However, we are growing. It's, it's, on a, it's one of our, on our mind all the time. Again, um, I want to thank you for a wonderful presentation and tell you, too, that um, in the last uh, few years, we've been kind of working together in my bringing to each, back to Egypt every couple of years groups that want to see firsthand what's being done here. And uh, so that's been... Uh, had good results, and uh, the people that have come from here have enjoyed getting a personal glimpse in not only Egypt that everybody sees, but uh, the Egypt that uh, Susie has represented today. Again, we want to thank uh, John and Mary Lokes for uh, underwriting this presentation and to tell you that uh, Susie will be uh, uh, on the lower level uh, to meet you personally for a few minutes after uh, the presentation. After. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.